The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we ask a few of our writers to read their piece from the magazine aloud. On today's episode, Mark Drew explains how Putin weaponised the Russian Orthodox Church. Luke Coppen says the war in Ukraine has vitalised Poland's Catholic Church. And Edward Behrens reads his notes on violets. First up, Mark Drew. In the week before Orthodox Lent began, some 233 Russian Orthodox priests published a petition calling for peace. The signatories spoke of the fratricidal war in Ukraine with a call for an immediate ceasefire and deplored the trial that our brothers and sisters in Ukraine were undeservedly subjected to. Anyone who knows how authority is exercised in the Russian Orthodox Church and how closely it has allied itself with Putin's authoritarian state will recognise the cleric's courage. But what effect is it likely to have on the attitude of the highest authorities in the church? To answer these questions, we need to understand not only the centuries-old link between political power and religious authority in Russia, but also the record of the key players. One major figure is Kirill I, Patriarch of Moscow and all Russia. He is an enthusiastic supporter of Putin's and has not relented in his praise for the war. In his sermon on forgiveness Sunday, he described Russia's military operation as justified and almost sacred. Repeating accusations of genocidal behaviour toward the breakaway Russian entities in the East, he complained that Ukrainians were waging a war more sinister at the metaphysical level against Russia and against Christianity by backing immoral causes like gay and transgender rights. Kirill's endorsement provides a religious gloss to the Kremlin's ideology of a Ruski Mir, or Russian world. The term implies Russia's destiny is to bring the peoples of the former Tsarist and Soviet empires under its leadership. It looks back to the idea of Moscow as the Third Rome, which saw Holy Russia as the protector of the Orthodox peoples. It is perfectly attuned to the nostalgic imperialism promoted by Putin. The petition of the peace priests is unlikely to be more than a minor irritation to Kirill. Its signatories constitute a tiny proportion of the more than 40,000 Russian Orthodox clergy, and there are no metropolitans or other influential senior clerics among them. This does not mean that there are not many more priests who oppose the war. There are reports from inside Russia of enormous stress on priests reluctant to support the Kremlin. Few are willing to risk speaking out. Threats from above are mirrored by pressures from below. Outside the big cities, support for the war is strong among the elderly rural populations who rely exclusively on official sources for information and who often form the backbone of their flocks. 
For the moment, Kirill and Putin may think that they have little to fear from within the church in Russia. The effects of the war on their church and relations with the outside world, however, will concern them more. Kirill now faces a setback in his campaign to assume the mantle of leadership within world orthodoxy. The Orthodox Church has no Pope, and Moscow seeks to supplant Bartholomew I, the Patriarch of Constantinople, who in theory is first among equals. In 2019, Bartholomew recognised an independent church in Ukraine. Although this church attracted a growing following, until the invasion, the majority of Ukrainian Orthodox, particularly in the Russian-speaking East, remained loyal to Moscow. That loyalty is now strained. Whole dioceses have broken with Moscow, and this trend will likely continue. This matters because the Ukrainian faithful of the Moscow Patriarchate form a large proportion of the estimated 90 million members of Kirill's church. Another important contingent is formed by dioceses and parishes outside Russia and Ukraine, prized by the Kremlin as an important focus of Russian influence. Some, like the long-established Russian parish in Amsterdam, have already seceded. Others are distancing themselves. Most are likely to be experiencing difficulties in maintaining internal unity. Some independent national churches, which had been tempted to back Moscow against Constantinople, appear to be reconsidering. Another worry is the effect on ecumenical relations. Kirill has said that he will never unite with non-Orthodox churches. At the same time, he has cultivated good relations with the Vatican and the World Council of Churches in the belief that it enhanced his influence. In 2016, while in Cuba, he became the first Moscow Patriarch to meet a reigning Pope. And the two produced a statement which to many, including many Orthodox opposed to Russian hegemony, seemed astonishingly compliant with Moscow's ecclesiastical Ruski Mir doctrine. Now, Pope Francis has jettisoned the Vatican's traditionally neutral approach to international conflicts by delivering an almost explicit rebuke to Kirill after a video conference, and has since clearly pointed the finger at Putin's aggression. Even Rowan Williams, whose scholarship shows a particularly deep knowledge and love of the Russian religious tradition, has called for the Russian church to be excluded from the World Council of Churches unless its leadership repents. A key part of the Kremlin's strategy of exerting influence through its church has been through the weaponization of culture war rhetoric. Conservative Christians, from traditionalist Catholics and Orthodox to evangelical Protestants, have seen Kirill and his church as important allies in resisting the dominance of Western liberal mores. Kirill's reference to gay pride marches in his attack on Ukraine were deliberately aimed at bolstering support from these quarters. The signs are that this backing is collapsing. There are, of course, some who prefer to believe the Kremlin's preposterous version of events, but many others recognise the brutal authoritarianism lurking behind the mask of piety. The marriage of conservative moral principle with unscrupulous political expediency, has been exposed. It is impossible to see how secure Putin's grip is on power, or what lies in store for the Church which he has succeeded in instrumentalising 
as much as any Tsar ever did. Kirill may see himself as the Tsar's good servant, but God's first. May God grant him a merciful hearing before the dread judgment seat, as the Orthodox liturgy prays. But the judgment of history may not be so merciful. That was Mark Drew. And now, Luke Coppen. In my wife's home city of Wrocław, there's a luxury hotel named after John Paul II. It always seems strange that the Catholic Church sanctioned this. Giant chandeliers and glitzy bathrooms weren't really what St John Paul stood for. And since the hotel opened in 2002, it seemed as much a monument to the church's decline as a tribute to a saint. But everything changed with the war in Ukraine. Some 2.5 million Ukrainians have fled to Poland since Russia's invasion, and the hotel is currently home to more than 100 refugees. It's as if the building has finally rediscovered its real purpose. What's true of the John Paul II Hotel is true more widely of the Polish Catholic Church. The response of Polish Catholics to the war was immediate, all out and magnificently unbureaucratic. A vast chain of care was formed that ran from nuns offering cups of tea to exhausted refugees at the Ukrainian border, to counsellors giving psychological support to terrified children, to the Archbishop welcoming new arrivals to stay in his cavernous palace. This great humanitarian effort is all the more remarkable because the Polish church appeared until very recently to be demoralised and adrift. Its reinvigoration could hold some lessons for the wider church, not just the Catholic Church, but the Church of England too. For many, the words Polish Catholicism evoked images from the 1980s, of dissidents speaking at shipyard gates in front of pictures of the Virgin Mary, vast crowds assembled for the funerals of martyr priests, and John Paul II dashing in his red cape. But it's time to update that picture, because the Polish Catholic Church has changed greatly. Following the Pope's death in 2005, it began to lose its way. The most obvious sign was the abuse crisis. Disturbing disclosures led the Vatican to punish a series of bishops for negligence, a humiliating twist for a church that had enjoyed such moral prestige. Trust vanished, especially among young Poles. One survey found that only 9% viewed it positively. It wasn't just abuse that troubled them, it was also the hierarchy's alliance with the polarising Law and Justice Party, which has led Poland since 2015. Anti-church sentiment exploded in 2020 after a further tightening of the country's strict abortion laws. Young protesters daubed, disrupted Sunday masses and daubed Poland's ubiquitous statues of John Paul II in red paint. These once inconceivable acts suggested a radical shift in Polish society. The church's internal weaknesses were becoming ever more apparent. Mass attendance, baptisms, marriages were all falling, while the number of men enrolling in Poland's seminaries dropped by a fifth last year. Looking at this picture just a couple of months ago, you might have thought that the Polish Catholic Church was a spent force, but you would have been wrong. In their outpouring of charity towards Ukrainian refugees, Polish Catholics have come to embody one of Pope Francis's most powerful intuitions, that the renewal of the Catholic Church comes through service. This is somewhat ironic given the Polish Church is often accused of being out of step with Francis. In his first major interview as Pope, Francis said, I see clearly that the thing the church needs most today is the ability to heal wounds and to warm the hearts of the faithful. It needs nearness, proximity. I see the church as a field hospital after battle. It is useless to ask a seriously injured person if he has high cholesterol and about the level of his blood sugars. You have to heal his wounds, then we can talk about everything else. Obviously the Pope is not the first Christian leader to emphasise service. But there is an unusual urgency to Francis's message. 
He believes that we are no longer living in normal times. And the beauty of the field hospital idea is that it applies not only to Christianity, but all our religions. In Judaism, for example, there is the concept of pikuach nefesh, that the preservation of human life overrides almost any religious rule. So, for example, members of an Orthodox Jewish team work through the Sabbath to save the injured after the 2010 Haiti earthquake. Charity is so central to the Muslim faith, meanwhile, that it is one of the five pillars of Islam. In Syria today, white helmet rescuers are consciously putting into practice the words of the Quran that to save a life is the same of all of humanity. As war, disease, poverty and famine stalk the world again, believers can draw on these principles and give them fresh expression, revitalising themselves in the process. If this sounds a little abstract, then consider two lives that embody the priority of service. The first is, is that of Elizaveta Pilenko, a Russian noblewoman who was so engaged in revolutionary politics in her youth that she plotted to assassinate Leon Trotsky. Forced into exile, she settled in Paris, where she took religious vows. Mother Maria Skobotsova, as she became known, was an unconventional nun. Chain-smoking cigarettes, she turned her convent into a home for refugees. Her habit of leaving communal prayer to answer the doorbell scandalised some of her fellow believers. Explaining why she put the needy first, she wrote, The way to God lies through love of people. At the last judgment I shall not be asked whether I was successful in my ascetic exercises, nor how many bows and prostrations I made. Instead I shall be asked, Did I feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick and the prisoners? That is all I shall be asked. After the occupation of France by the Nazis, she offered shelter to Jews, was arrested by the Gestapo and died in a gas chamber at Ravensbrück in 1945. She was recognised as an Orthodox Christian saint in 2004. Her life had many parallels with that of Dorothy Day. After throwing herself into left-wing politics in 1920s New York, Day became a Catholic. Her faith offered a new outlet for her social activism, and she co-founded the Catholic Worker Movement, which offered hospitality to the homeless. She remained clear-eyed about the destitute to whom she dedicated her life. There are two things you should know about the poor. They tend to smell, and they are ungrateful. Both Skobotsova and Day sought salvation in radical politics, but they found it in the unglamorous service of the poor. Perhaps today's upheavals would produce others like them. It would surely be naive to think that the glorious philanthropic upsurge in Poland will reverse the decline in church-going. When we hear the word renewal, we tend to think only of an increase in numbers, yet it's possible to conceive it differently as an internal reinvigoration. In 1969, another year of epochal change, Joseph Ratzinger, the future Benedict XVI, devoted his address to the topic, what will the future church look like? Peering decades ahead, he foresaw an institution that had lost much of its past prestige. She will become small and will have to start afresh, more or less from the beginning, he said, predicting that the real crisis had barely begun. We will have to count on terrific upheavals, he went on, but I am equally certain that what will remain at the end, not the church of the political cult, which is dead already, but the church of faith. It may well no longer be the dominant social power to the extent that she was until recently, but it will enjoy a fresh blossoming and be seen as man's home, where he will find life and hope beyond death. The Christian church is shrinking in the West, as Benedict XVI said. This doesn't have to be a disaster. There were just 12 disciples who were convinced that they had witnessed the death and resurrection of their teacher. Somehow this was enough to transform the world. There are some interesting similarities between the Church of England and the Polish Catholic Church, both the guardians of national identity with unrivaled parish networks. 
If the refugee crisis has helped Polish Catholics recover their sense of purpose, couldn't a similar challenge do the same for Anglicans? According to one estimate, 1.3 million Britons will be pushed into absolute poverty by the cost of living crisis. Could the C of E lead an effort to help them? This would tap into a fine British tradition of Christian social engagement that includes a Salvation Army with its work among Victorian gamblers and drinkers and Anglo-Catholic slum priests. This is not an encouragement for the CV to play politics or grandstand on Twitter. It is about actual service. While the decline of the Polish church is real, it is also relative. Nine out of ten Poles still describe themselves as Catholics. More than a third of the faithful regularly attend Mass. While priestly numbers are falling, one in four Catholic ordinations in Europe still takes place in Poland. In the 20th century, the Polish church was fortunate to be led by two spiritual giants, John Paul II and Cardinal Stefan Wyszynski, a figure less well-known outside Poland. During the Warsaw Uprising, Wyszynski served in an actual field hospital outside the Polish capital. One day he found a piece of burning paper that had been blown from the charred ruins of Warsaw. On it were the words, You will love. He took it as an instruction that he spent the rest of his life fulfilling. Polish Catholics are responding with the same spirit to today's war. In doing so, they are challenging the inevitable decline mentality that has gripped too many Western Christians for too long. That was Luke Coppen. And finally, Edward Behrens. The English Rock Garden, the magnum opus of the great gardening writer, horticulturalist and plant collector Reginald Farrer, is an indispensable A to Z guide to alpine flowers. When he finally reaches V, Farrer writes, Viola brings this alphabet to the last great dragon in its path. But rather than offering fire-breathing terror, he presents a family of flowers containing both beauties and dull and dowdy species. There are between 400 and 500 species in the Viola family. The sweet violet, while lacking the dark mystery and beauty of its cousin, Bowles Black, was associated with Aphrodite and became a symbol of both Athens and fertility, which evolved into a Scots tradition of violets being presented to brides on their wedding day in the Athens of the north. The Bonapartes chose the violet as their floral emblem, and it was Empress Mary Louise who established the violet industry in Parma after her separation from Napoleon. They're famously easy to grow and spring up in wild woods, suburban gardens and even terracotta pots from late winter through to early spring in Britain. One of the most famous literary violas appears in Wordsworth's poem, She Dwelt Among the Untrodden Ways. At the centre of this evasive articulation of grief are the lines where its subject, Lucy, is translated into a violet by a mossy stone, half hidden from the eye. Violets come into their own at Easter. Purple is, after all, the colour used to symbolise suffering in the church. It used to be said that these bold flowers grew up straight until the shadow of the cross fell upon them and caused them to bow their heads in sorrow. Yet violets are perhaps more readily thought of as a sweeter pleasure. The viola odorata has been used in kitchens for hundreds of years. In the 18th century, violets would most commonly be found as a dressing for rose veal. American food writer M.F.K. Fisher thought a salad of satiny white endive with large, heavily-scented Parma violets scattered through it that appeared in The Pleasures of the Table by the botanist George Elwanger would be the most exquisite dish. The reality was a disappointment. 
The petals can be candied or infused into creams, which are particularly good as chocolates. Fortnum and Mason started selling violet creams in the 1920s. For aficionados of a certain sort of sweet, the flavour of violets reaches its finest expression in the Parma violet. Named after the violet that is reputed to have the most beautiful scent, this sweet was first produced by British confectioner Swizzles Matlow in 1946. Slightly tragically, a survey by an online sweet retailer found that Parma violets were the most hated sweet in the country. If any of those Palmer Violet critics were looking for validation for their disdain, they need look no further than Ian Fleming. James Bond's nemesis Blofeld is revealed in Chapter 6 of Thunderball, titled The Man with the Violet Breath, to sweeten his breath with violet-scented cashews. There is no attempt to hide the derision for such florid deception, though it comes alongside Blofeld's very beautiful, sonorous voice. But then... As Farrer and Wordsworth saw, violets have always contained both great beauty and something more fearful. That was Edward Behrens, and that's it for this episode of Spectator Out Loud. Thank you for listening, and have a very happy Easter. <laughs>